0: Our reading is 1 Samuel, chapter 13, which can be found on page 282 in the Red Bibles. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel and a 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Jeba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel, But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him they numbered about 600. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned towards Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another towards Beth-horon, and the third towards the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim facing the wilderness not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of israel because the philistines had said otherwise the hebrews will make swords or spears so all israel went down to the philistines to have their plowshares mattocks axes and sickles sharpened the price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes for repointing goads. so on the day of the battle not a soldier with saul and jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand only saul and jonathan had them this is the word of the lord
1: hi folks. nice to see you all um if you would like to um you can Close your eyes, and if you think I get to about 20 minutes, you can stick a hand in the air, um, or you can just get up and walk out if you want to. You make that cool. Uh, It's a fun game to play if you'd like to. Um, We're going to think about that passage. I want to start with this question. Um, How does a leader react in a crisis? How does a leader react in a crisis? We seem to have no shortage of crises. Uh, in, our, in our country and society generally, over the past uh, year, maybe a few years. Um, how does a leader react in a crisis? Oh, I guess in, from a faith perspective, theological perspective, um, we're asking perhaps when there is a crisis for a, uh, a faith, a Christian leader, um, how do they react when there is a crisis? Will they trust God's word or not? Um, when there is a crisis, uh, does a Christian leader trust God's word or not? Where this uh, talk is going, I hope, uh, towards, uh, as we go and towards the end, is we're really going to try and understand um, why is what Saul does so wrong? Why is what Saul does so wrong? So I imagine it's the question that's nagging away underneath some of us at least. So let's try and have a look and see. Um, the story is a great one as ever, it just it really, and I think we'll take it through the different scenes in the story because I think that helps us see what is going on and why um, Saul ends up where he does. Um, there is no shortage. Uh, there's a noble tradition of crisis movies in the world. I don't know if you've come across some of them. Uh, there's, a, there's a great sort of seam of, uh, of movies that have been made. Now, when, when you get crisis movies, things are usually, well, there's something, they're down in some way. So. White House Down, if you've come across that movie, um, Black, oh, there we go, yeah, White House Down, that's, that's a good fun action movie, Black Hawk Down, um, things are down in crises, or if they're not down, they have fallen, so Olympus has fallen, uh, London has fallen, you know you're in a crisis movie because the things are down or they are fallen. And that is exactly where the, writing, the, the opening setup of our, um of our um, story here, which actually Sarah brought out for us, is that, if you like, the opening scene is that Israel has fallen. We are left in absolutely no doubt um, about it. Saul, 3,000 soldiers. The Philistines, this vast army they have gathered against them. That phrase that was used, that they have soldiers, um, as many as uh, the sand on the seashore, um, uh, that's uh, quotes from uh, early on. I think there's a little quote up there coming. Um, and it says, that's, if you might, you might remember back in the Old Testament, uh, earlier in the Old Testament, actually it's a reference to, that was how God's people uh, were going to be numbered. So the, the descendants of, of God's people would be so vast and so great, they would be uh, more uh, than the sand on the seashore. You couldn't count them. And so here, there is this great enemy that has risen up, which has that scale to it. So it's a formidable, worrying, terrifying enemy. And the actions that we're told about as this has its impact on Saul and their, and his army are so, so clear. We're told um, verse four, the Israelites saw that their situation was critical. Um, they were, we're told, their army was hard-pressed. So what did they do? They hid in caves, and thickets, and rocks, and pits, and cisterns. They also they run to hide. Um, and we're told a little later that the, the remaining troops are quaking with fear. And, in fact, many of them uh, scatter and flee. So there's absolutely no doubt that sort of Israel has fallen. This is a crisis uh, it's a terrible uh, situation that Saul faces. And uh, it brings us then to well, what does Saul do? What do you do with that? And scene two is Saul's rash act. It's against that backdrop that Saul does what he does, facing that kind of terror. Um, and in fact, so verse seven, we're, we're told that actually things are almost getting worse. So some Hebrews then even cross the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Um, So Saul, where he is, is in Gilgal, um, where the troops are are, are quaking with fear. Um, And it brings us uh, back to the instructions that Samuel had given to him, uh, which Sarah talked about from chapter 10. So a little bit earlier on, that was in the sort of preparatory phase for his kingship. So when he was being prepped for it and said, you're going to be king, he was given some instructions. And one of those instructions was, when you get to Gilgal, you're going to need to wait seven days before I come, and when I come, says Samuel, I will then offer the, uh, make the offerings to the Lord uh, for you, um, and you are to wait for me to get there. So those instructions, when we're told that he's in Gilgal, that's sort of meant to come back into our mind. Go to Gilgal, wait seven days until I come. But of course Saul is there, leaking troops. They're literally now swimming across the river to get away. So you imagine every day he's kind of working out what have I even got left? Is Samuel here? Could somebody go and watch for me? As more troops leave, as more hide, as more run away. How, how many days can you keep that up? Day one, day two, day three, day four. Is Samuel here? He's not come. Did he lay awake at night? Sent people out? Can you see him on the horizon? Is he coming? Day five. Day six, day seven, he's still not here, Saul. You haven't got many troops left. So what does he do? So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Why does he do it? He says later, verse 12, he'll tell us, um, he says, I hadn't... Uh, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favour, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Now, what you make of Saul, uh, we're going to come back to that, what's going on with him. Was it the right call or not? Uh, but just briefly, can you see... He says there the Philistines were coming down. Like you can, you can understand, can't you? Day seven, no Samuel. Uh, what do I do? I've just got, I've just got to make the offering myself. And he says I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And it's just worth noting, like if i if we're honest, I think there are times, aren't there, where we can, we can come to a decision that we is this strange mix of sounding spiritual, but also just doing pragmatically what we need to do. And we can kind of slightly spiritualize things sometimes. And Paul is there trying to reason this out. I felt, I felt compelled to do it. Didn't really have a choice. You kind of made me. Scene three. He's just made the burnt offering. And Samuel arrives. And Samuel asks one of those questions, the simplicity of which is, is genius. That is often it's the most simple, straightforward questions, are the ones that really get to us. He says, what have you done? What have you done? It's actually, it's very like the question that God asks Adam and Eve when he, in Genesis, returns to the garden. He says, what have you done? It's like the question, very like the question he asked to Cain when he has murdered his brother. What have you done? The simple questions that get right under the skin. And Saul's answer is actually very similar to, uh, the, the, the answer that's given in Eden when God comes and asks them. Because he says, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now they're going to come down against me. So, of course, I had to act. When I, saw, when I saw the fruit and it looked really great, I thought, and you kind of, you kind of made me do it, Lords." His reasoning is very has strong echoes of that. Um, Samuel then says to him, "You have done a foolish thing." I sometimes wonder what the scene was like. Just as just as uh, Saul has has made the offering, I assume he's got to the very end of day seven, and Samuel then appears and says, "What have you done?" You imagine like a low rumble of thunder at that point. "What have you done, Saul? What has happened?" And he says, you've done a foolish thing, which in the Bible's terms is a very strong rebuke to be a fool. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And if you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. And I think just it's worth trying to locate exactly what is, what is going on and what is it that Saul's done that has made him, uh, Samuel call him a fool and, and called him foolish. And if you remember, a few weeks ago, when he was being prepared as king, I used this diagram to set up how the relationship was meant to be. So the king, we said when he was first sort of chosen by Samuel the prophet, the terms of it were set out, and they've actually been repeated in various ways over these past few weeks, if you've noticed, that God's word, and I said that was via the prophet in practical terms then, God's words was to be there, and the king was actually to be underneath God's word. So the king was to be uh, humble, um, He was to be to, really he was a steward of God's people, he was given that role by God, and so it was that arrangement, the king was to come humbly under uh, God's words as ministered by the prophet. So he wasn't a great, so you weren't given freedom as a dictator to run things on your own, actually it was that arrangement, and in many ways you were underneath God's prophets. And that was the setup here, you wait seven days, I will come to you. And what happens in this moment, and why it is so significant, is Saul flips that order around. And so he, as king, has put himself above God's words. And one of the things we might wrestle with about Saul is, what, you know, how, how bad was it really? It's, that is at the heart of why this is so serious for Saul, and actually the result is, the result is going to be devastating. It takes us to the, the fourth scene. The, the search for a new king now begins. So Samuel, having, having said you're a, you're a fool for doing this, he now says this. Your, your kingdom would have been established, but now your kingdom won't endure. And the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And the parallels with um, Eden, Genesis, the, uh, the, uh, that story are, are, are really strong. So if you can imagine, in a sense, the way that Adam and Eve, when that happens and they fall, God says, Okay, now death is yours. And the reality of, uh, uh, of spiritual death is real, but it's not immediate. They don't die there on the spots, they obviously live their lives. And with Saul, not the first human, but the first king, now the reality is not spiritual death in this sense, but spiritual dethronement is real and is going to happen. It's not immediate. He will live out his days as king, but it's going to be a reality for him. And the search for a new king has begun. Even in this, in this you know, really early stage of, of Saul's kingship, the path will go a different route and to a different person. Tim, um, when he was talking to us last week, said something that was really key about what has happened and how we've got, where we've got to in this story. He was saying that when the people um, had wanted a king, you might remember, this was a bad idea, uh, and God had said, this is not, you're, you're rejecting me, you want your own king. But Tim was explaining to us last week, at that point, they have then hitched themselves to a new leader. They said we don't want you God, as our king but we'll have a king like the other nations and they've hitched themselves to that king and god says well okay you can have that but from that point onwards the question then becomes how does that leader relate to god's word? how does that leader relate to god's word because god was their king they didn't want him he says okay you can have another king in my place so then the question becomes how will that leader relates to God's word. And actually, you can see all through the Old Testament with the different kings there are and how they uh, they, um, uh, are judged about their relationship with God's words. Which brings us back to that nagging question that maybe you've had and maybe you do have, which is, it's, it's easy, isn't it, really, to think, isn't Saul a little bit hard done by here? Isn't it? Is everyone just a bit harsh on Saul? Like it's some burnt offerings is it that bad? Um, He seemingly got to the end of the seven days, you know, are we being a little harsh on him? What? Surely he just did what he kind of had to do, because that was the situation that he was in. And you can imagine the reasoning, well, everything looked desperate, backs to the wall, troops aren't there, Um, it wasn't reasonable to do anything else, Saul might have said in his defense. But I wonder if you can just trace through, how readily do we, do we sort of start with that reasoning and how readily does that track through to, well, I don't think in this situation it's just even remotely possible to trust God. I think in the situation that we're in, it's too hard. I think you can reasonably trust God at that point. To, it goes against every feeling that I have to say that I could trust God in this situation. And you see how internally we might ourselves wrestle with that who is above whom. Now, stepping back for a moment, I, you know, I'm, I'm aware I'm talking to uh, both Christians and those who perhaps would say they're not Christians. And I think this only really makes sense. What I'm talking about here is if, if, we, if you think God's word, uh, the scriptures, are living and vital for us. Okay, I think it's an assumption that I'm making here, which I want to be explicit about, because in one sense, if, you're, if not, and perhaps if you're not a Christian or you're, or you're just kind of looking from the outside, in some ways it will sound mad, won't it? To say that there's something, there's this ancient set of texts and scriptures and that for some reason we're going to set our lives and order them underneath that. It's bonkers. Unless you think they are living and vital for us. But that's the assumption the Bible makes but it's a, I think it's, a, it's worth voicing that and saying, if you're looking at this from the outside thinking, this is crazy, there's something to that. It's actually unless, only when we see or when we kind of consider that the scriptures might be vital for how we live, that god they are God's words to us, that he's continually trying to put back in the centre of our lives and we're continually pushing away. Actually, when, when you see them as that, then the question becomes, okay, so how do I live under those? And in a, in a world, I'm just aware that we're in a way, an age, an interesting age at the moment, a, a secular age, a, a, a moving past Christ, a Christianity age, where lots, there are lots of views in society at large about what Christians should or shouldn't do, um, or how churches should or shouldn't be. It's interesting, there's a lot of, a lot of perspective out there on how uh, a church should be, or, or what Christians should or shouldn't do, from those who aren't necessarily themselves Christians. And maybe if you're... If, you're, if you say you're not, that might be a question you have. But if you're not a Christian, and, and perhaps you have friends who aren't, like, it's a good question to ask. How do you think the church should organise itself? How do you think Christians should follow God? If you're looking from the outside, do you not think they should consider what God says in his word and order themselves rightly underneath it? Or are we asking them to just effectively be like the rest of the world. So Saul, and we may be wrestling, I'm just conscious, we may be wrestling with how, you know, how hard done by do we think he is, but that is what, what gets at the heart of why Samuel is so harsh, why the kingdom passes from him, because he rejects and moves aside from God's words. There is a short epilogue just at the end, an intriguing one, and you might have wondered why it was there. A little epilogue, which I call Blacksmith's, down. Um, Do you like that? <laughs> I was very pleased with that. <laughs> By this point, Saul has only got 600 men, um, which is interesting because earlier in the scriptures, in Judges, Gideon has fewer than that. So he's not, he's not been unheard of, but only 600. Now the Philistines have been interesting. They've, they've been seemingly craftily arranging the economy locally so that there are, they are the only ones With blacksmiths, Um, you could call it the Philistine protocol, if you want. But they are—they are there, and they—they are—they for some reason they are the only ones with blacksmiths. And it means that the uh, the Israelites, if they want to get anything sharpened, they have to go to the Philistines in a sort of strange arrangement. They have to pay decent sum of money to get uh, something sharpened. And the only things they've got that they can get sharpened are their agricultural tools, you know, their spades and forks and so on. And so all they've got. And so they're in this situation where, up against the big army, all they have, they have no, spe- uh, no swords or spears between them. They can go and get their... their I don't know whether they, they sort of took their forks and spades into battle, because that was all they had. But we're told at the end, the situation is this bleak, that on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear, only Saul and his son Jonathan had them, And the question that we're left with by the end is, is there a leader who can work in weakness? Is there a leader who can trust God in that kind of situation? Is there a leader who, in that kind of crisis, will hold and put themselves under God's word and trust what he says? And that's where we really will take us into the next couple of weeks. Um, We'll start to see the figure of Jonathan, who brings something different to this story. Um, But I want to leave us with this question. What kind of leader are you going to hitch yourself to? One for you to ponder and reflect on. I think it operates at some different levels. I think it's a good question to ask in society at large. when When this series was planned, I really had no idea how many leaders would get changed over the course of the past while, wow, and how, uh, how much in society we would have seen this kind of uh, revolving door of leaders, um, uh, particularly here in the UK, and some other places as well. But also for us uh, in the church, from a faith perspective, from a Christian perspective, what kind of leader are you going to hitch yourself to? What kind of leader is God asking for? I think it is a good question for us to ask in the kind of context that we live in. And it's a reminder why, as so much of the Old Testament is, as it lays out this kind of pattern of kings who come and go and so often push aside God's word and so often don't live up to it and don't sort of stick with it. And it's a reminder, I think God lays down this pattern for us and shows us the ways in which we need a leader who can do this, who can operate out of weakness and yet still trust God's words. And it's a reminder why we need and why he sent Jesus. Why, after all of the sort of laying down of these kings, and none of them was quite what we needed, that actually it would come one day that he would send him his only son to be the kind of leader who could both operate out of weakness and say, "I hold to God's words." And in a different garden to so the, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, would be able to say, Look, in the in the crises of crises, when the backs are to the wall and when you're leaking disciples, "Not my will." but yours, Lord, a leader who would come and be like that for us who know that we don't hold to God's word, that we do watch the clock, and we get to the seven days, and we've had enough, and we can't follow him anymore. He came for people like us who do that. Just over 20 minutes. Um, why don't we pray, reflect, and uh, we'll sing in just a moment. Father, we, we come to you. I, I often reflect, Saul is quite a scary figure in the Bible in some ways. Uh, cast into that role and yet so rapidly uh, turns away from your words. Um, Lord, I guess we perhaps recognize and see reflected in that the ways in which we do that, and we justify it before you, and you come up with reasons for it, and Lord, I pray that it would just remind us afresh, actually, of why your son was so needed. For us who do that, uh, from the the lowliest person to the highest king who, who does exactly this, and that your son came to fulfill what we couldn't, to be what we couldn't, to Uh, respond in obedience to your word in ways that we couldn't. Um, Lord, I pray that in him and leaning on him, we would then be able to say, uh, as the words of this song will uh, uh, remind us, blessed uh, be your name, that we can speak in whatever circumstances we have of you uh, and of our reliance um, on your son in our place. Amen.